You're listening to Investigation Insiders by Integris Intelligence. Hello again, everyone. This is Farhad. I hope you are all doing well and staying safe. Uh, I want to deviate a little bit from the standard opening of the podcast and take a moment to recognize my mom. As I alluded to during the last episode of Jerry Hart, with Jerry Hart, we lost our mom uh, this past Memorial Day. Needless to say, it is awful. Anyone that has gone through it knows it's probably one of the worst things you could go through. Um, I wanted to talk about her just a little bit before we got into the episode. So some of you know this, some of you do not, uh, but my mom raised myself and my three siblings essentially on her own uh, for the past 30 years. Uh, Even though we were adults uh, for much of that, uh, you know how that goes. Uh, You're always a child to your mother. And we were children when um, my dad first passed away. at a very young age. And, you know, she placed great value on family, on education, on just being decent human beings. Um, And while we didn't have a lot after my dad passed away, my mom actually, she made us feel like we were never in need of anything. In fact, looking back on it, I know that we were actually privileged. So not so much from a monetary sense, but more so that we believed that we could do and be anything that we wanted to be. She never let us feel any other way. And again, looking back on it, it's just such a privilege. So I just wanted to thank you, uh, mom, for everything that you did for us. Uh, We'll try to do our best to follow the path you set for us and guide our children in the same direction. Um, I love you very much. Um, Thank you to everyone who called, sent messages, letters, flowers, and fruit baskets. Trust me, we needed it. So uh, I appreciate uh, my guest letting me take a little bit of an interlude. um, And it's an amazing guest that we have, uh, my friend and former colleague, Mike Martin. How are you, Mike? Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, my condolences on the passing of your mother. As I as I told you at the time, she did a wonderful job raising you under you know such circumstances, and you know just the light of the love that comes through through you and your siblings is is uh, something that is unmatched. I, I appreciate it, Mike, and and um, I appreciate you saying that. Uh, each time I, I I talk about it a little bit more, it, it's sort of my uh, grieving process. So uh, thank you. Um, So Mike and I actually uh, met at Guardsmark. Uh, Like myself, Mike joined the security industry at a pretty young age, the private security industry at a pretty young age, when it was very, very different from how it is today. Um, In fact, Mike was one of the very young team members at Guardsmark who paved the way for people like myself and others. Um, Even though we have not worked together really since 2006, when I say work together, I mean work for the same company, um, we've always remained close. So does that sum it up right, Mike? Yeah, you know, I I was one of the first young ones through the door, I guess. And uh, 
got the scars <laughs> through it, and the ones that came before me or after me benefited from some of those scars. No, no doubt uh, for sure. So, uh, for those audience members that don't know you as well, would you mind talking a little bit about your background? Yeah, sure. Um, I grew up in a suburb of Detroit, and uh, uh, unfortunately, I, I learned to become a hometown fan for my uh, Tigers, Lions, Pistons, uh, uh, and Red Wings. Uh, the highs and lows of a sports fan, I, I could say I, I definitely uh, uh, experienced. Uh, and uh, going through a period now where they're all in a rebuild, so I can focus more on work because uh, there's not much going on in those areas right now. Um, but as I went through school, I worked as a lifeguard, actually. So that might have been a, an interesting precursor about what my future might hold with me. But I worked as a lifeguard through my high school and college years uh, for what was the largest indoor-outdoor pool in the nation uh, in the city of Warren, which was the north suburb of uh, Detroit. Uh, when I graduated high school, I knew that I wanted to go to Michigan State University. I went there and enrolled in their criminal justice program. It was a great experience, and because of just great mentors from both the grad advisors and the professors there and a lot of practitioners, um, I was encouraged to kind of join ASIS as a student member. Um, and through ASIS, I, didn't, uh, I, I put together a, a thesis on my internships, which were done with the Department of Aerospace and Defense on at the time, which was uh, software theft. And it, it enabled me to actually get enough money to go and attend our overseas program. And so my entire senior year at Michigan State was overseas and I attended Cambridge University in England. Uh, and the program included uh, enrolling in the Bromsville Police Training Staff College. And also why I was overseas I interned for the same company that I did the uh, ASIS uh, scholarship um, uh, paper for, uh, and then went to work at Stoke-on-Trent uh, as another part of the internship while I was out there. Uh, so, so that's sort of like the um, the foundation. That's the early parts of getting introduced really into the security business, right? Like, was it? something you were aspiring to, or was it like law enforcement or like was private security in the mix? Yeah, so straight out of college, I applied to numerous uh, federal agencies, but a lot of them at that time, it was 1992, you know, you had a lot of, you know, because of the post Gulf War experience, you had a lot of the military people coming out because they were they were riffing a lot of the military. So a lot of the, the three letter agencies were requiring five years of experience. And you know, I didn't have that yet. And sure. to go back to a bit that when I did the internship for the defense industry, you know, we were looking at software theft, which was the primary, you know, reason for the the study that I was doing. Mm -hmm. But it, it, it was an exposure to, you know, the corporate world for the first time where I was thinking, okay, we're trying to catch, you know, someone breaking the law by using, you know, you know, software that that's unlicensed, right. And when I went to some of the meetings to debrief them on, you know, my findings and that, you know, they were asking, well, could you tell if somebody had not not just the the approved software, but could you see if they had, you know, software like gaming software and things like that? And it kind of opened my eyes. They they didn't want so much. And, you know, part of it was they wanted to be in compliance with the software regulations. Um, but they also wanted to see, 
you know, were there engineers that are, you know, making high dollar amounts in those days, stealing, quote unquote, stealing time by playing games or doing other things, you know, on company equipment. So that was right. kind of a, you know, an exposure that I didn't expect. But back to your question, no, you know, I wasn't thinking security industry per se, I was thinking more federal law enforcement, but there were just so many barriers at that time that, you know, every place was asking for that five years of experience. So I kind of went to my second tier, which was uh, Guardsmark actually recruits at Michigan State University. And there was a former Secret Service agent by the name of Don Nelson, who was up there recruiting him. He was also a, a Michigan State grad from years ago. And, you know, he kind of painted the picture of Guardsmark being very different as the rest of the industry. And I was like, well, maybe that would be a good place for me to get that experience. And there just seemed to be so many, you know, ex-federal law enforcement people that were working at Guardsmark. I figured that could be a good place for me to make connections and get that five-year uh, base experience, you know, at a place like Guardsmark. So, you know, I went in and, you know, uh, called my contacts from the recruiting and they were able to set something up and they just had landed a large account in Michigan. It was the merger of uh, Comerica and Manufacturers Bank. And they, they had a, a bunch of new positions. And so uh, I went and uh, I think I applied for a couple management positions, but ended up uh, being offered the position as a training supervisor uh, mm -hmm. for what at the time was one of uh, Guardsmark's uh, longest running and largest accounts uh, that they had at the time. Sure. Sure. So, so tell us a little bit about like guards, Mark. I mean, it was a long time there and then sort of the tr transition from there to AUS and then what you're doing now. Yeah, I think, so I kind of moved up pretty rapidly. Um, you know, one at the account that I was at, uh, you know, I think in my early twenties, I had about 300 officers reporting to me and, you know, after a couple of years, I was kind of like, well, there's got to be more, you know, I could do this, you know, forever if I wanted to, I'm sure. But I kind of looked at setting my sights higher up within the organization. And so that's when, while working for Guardsmark, I pursued my MBA. And uh, so kind of one of the things that makes me pretty unique here in the state of Michigan <laughs> is I have my undergrad from Michigan State University, but I have my MBA from Michigan. So, um, <laughs> you know, it was, it was always a good conversation starter. But uh, one, of the, one of the things that Guardsmark offered me at the time, you know, because I think they were worried that I would get my MBA and, you know, and be off and not come back to the company. So they, they managed to like any break that I had, especially the summer breaks, they would send me on things across the country and give me exposure to whether it be a, a new account startup, you know, a large account being started in the Midwest, or they had office vacancies that needed to be turned around or they just had issues with clients. So I kind of was able to get my hand in turning around um, security programs or running a small office or helping get large projects started. So it was a way to kind of keep me involved and interested. And it would, you know, made me want to, you know, pursue, you know, staying with the company when I got out. So, you know, during those times, I learned a lot about project management, how to do uh, quick turnarounds, and then, you know, seeing, you know, firsthand that, you know, how management vacancies could lead to both morale and customer issues. So upon getting my MBA, I moved up quickly within Guardsmark. You know, that kind of seemed the catalyst to getting me, you know, and plus the work that I did in the summers during the program 
uh, I kind of moved rather quickly to vice president regional manager, where over time I ran the Midwest, Canada, and then eventually the UK uh, for Garsmark. And I was there 20, about 23 years until we were acquired by Universal. And then they, of course, later merged with Allied into what is now, you know, Allied Universal. And I was there as president of Canada when the circadian risk opportunity presented itself. And I worked out a deal with Allied Universal so that I could transition from AUS to circadian over a two-year period. Uh, and then, you know, so I could really take care of my customers and employees that were uh, at Allied Universal and be able to go into this kind of exciting new, new kind of position as CEO of Circadian Risk. Yep, and and we'll get into Circadian a little bit later on um, uh, in the episode, but just a, a couple of quick questions. Um, a, once you really got rolling with guards, Mark, did you ever consider going back into law enforcement? And B, uh, equally as important, who do you side with on sports, the University of Michigan <laughs> or Michigan State? Okay, so I, I'm prepared for both questions uh, because I, I, uh, I, I could say I have been asked these in the past. So, um, <laughs> is, is far, five years in, I definitely, I definitely looked back uh, and said, you know, hey, I'm kind of getting to that age where I need to make the decision about am I going to stay and continue to grow with with Guardsmark, or do I want to take that step and go into federal law enforcement and and I, and I think, you know, one of the conversations I had on the time was with the president of uh, Garge Mark Ira Lippman at the time. And when I was saying I was looking at this, you know, I remember him saying, he goes, you're interviewing people coming out of the positions that you're thinking about going into, you know, that, you know, they want to be where you are, you know, right. and, and that kind of struck me, but I was still like, you know, you kind of have that you know, desire to, to kind of go and see, well, what kind of an agent would I make in that? But, you know, probably talking, you know, in the relationships I developed with uh, different uh, uh, former agents in that, and when I really kind of weighed things together, I was so much further ahead in my life and where I wanted to be professionally at that point where it really looked that going into one of the agencies or into law enforcement was going to be a step back for me. Sure. And so it, 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 I didn't have that desire uh, to tell a kind of side story. You know, uh, Weldon Kennedy was former assistant director of the, the FBI, and I were sent to go talk somebody out of going into um, federal <laughs> law enforcement that was with the company, you know. And, you know, we we're given orders, hey, you know, you know, talk to him about, you know, what it's going to be like and everything like that. And when we went out there, um, you know, Weldon told me, he said, I'm not going to talk the guy out of it. And he goes, I'll talk to him and I'll listen to him. He said, but if they've got the jazz to kind of, you know, you know, freeze federal agent, you know, he goes, they kind of need to get that out of their system. You know, right. if they, if they really got that and they got to find out for themselves. And he goes, for some people, it, it's going to be a life-changing and rewarding experience. And I, he goes, I would hate to talk them out of it. So, so <laughs> I, I was sworn to secrecy, but since, Guardsmark is no longer around. I guess I can tell that story now. But it was just one of those things where it was about doing the right thing, you know. Then you know, then just what was good for the company. Sure. So, so yeah, the the decision for me was it really felt like no matter where I went um, in in law enforcement, by the time I would have hit twenty seven, twenty eight, 
I, I would have been taken a step back. And Gargemark definitely had me on a trajectory at that point where I had started attending, you know, the monthly president's meetings and, and, you know, growing the business in such a way that, you know, hey, there was a lot of rewards to what I was doing and I had at that time had a great team around me. Sure. Sure. Then for the Michigan versus Michigan State, one, I think your heart is always with your, you know, your your undergrad because that's where you do the most growing up, right? Sure. You know, uh, uh, the MBA was more a means to an end. Yeah. Uh, but probably more importantly, the fact that my wife is also a Spartan and not not a Wolverine, um, I definitely say go green on game days. <sighs> okay, I got you. Well, I'm sure you'll tick somebody off with your answer um not not just that one but many of the answers throughout this but, but i'm not i'm not ticking off the most important person that would true hear this, this is true <laughs> and you are you are good and this is without any preparation by the way uh my mike um there was a miscommunication with with uh, sort of the outline that i give to sort of our guests and mike didn't get it till about an hour ago and he had a call in between and he was still well prepared for to answer that question i'll tell you yeah. the <laughs> so i thought um we would pay a little bit of a tribute to the company that we both got our real start yeah. by asking you a few yeah. questions right so what do you remember most about working for guardsmark you know when when all is said and done and all has been you know said and done on the the experience there yeah, I, I come to the same conclusion. And, and when I talk to people that were there and on the inside, not just witnessing it from the outside, uh, yeah. it's the quality of people we worked with. No um, and that's from both the employee and the customer standpoint. Um, yeah. I think the best thing about Gargemark was its ability to attract people who, you know, demanded excellence and were of high character. And, and it was at every level because they wanted to be associated with something bigger. You know, the industry was not, what Guardsmark was putting out there was not the norm that the industry was known for. And, and so just the ability to get that high caliber of people in is what I look back and what I think, you know, I, I remember the most and the lessons learned from those people. Sure, sure. And it, I 100% agree with that. And uh, it's, it's, you know, it's an incredible, pedigree in this business anyway and you know while i'm a met fan this doesn't seem to resonate as well when i use the mets i'm going to use the yankees it's like starting your career with the yankees you know what i mean and then going yeah. from there um so uh i agree with you so on that note <laughs> i think i know the answer to this but who is the most memorable and why uh, i'm gonna do it in uh, layers but i i first and foremost have to say ira Lippman. Yeah. Um, I, I would say, and I think I alluded to this is when I said I was one of the first young people through the wall, <laughs> um, I would definitely categorize it as I received a lot of tough love. Sure. Um, but I also recognize, you know, that I was very young and, and, and it, and it took some, some interactions with some of the other people around to let me know, Hey, he wouldn't be challenging you like this. If he didn't think you could deliver, he's not the type of person that would waste that kind of time on somebody. Sure. You know, and and I kind of, you know, when I when I would talk to, you know, you know, two star army generals and, you know, former uh, heads of the different bureaus that we dealt with and they say, hey, you know, we all have kind of, you know, took our lumps and learned along the way. You're learning right in here, you know, sure. so 
So when, when people say those things, it, it meant a lot to me when they said, listen, you know, when you think back about it, you know, he wouldn't have been challenging me like that if he didn't think I'd be able to deliver. And, you know, that, that the kind of the lessons learned, you yeah. know, that I got from him, I, I find myself incorporating it into my current role with, of course, different delivery methods, right? We all have our own style. But, you know, now when I see somebody that, you know, can't get out of their own way or that is making mistakes because they're not seeing the bigger picture, you know, I'm able to kind of zero in on that and, and use some of those methods to, to kind of correct actions before they become problems. Sure. And then, so, so that's first and foremost. Um, the, the next tier, I would say the, the number of people that we met from, you know, those different age, that, that came sure. in with well-established careers. I mean, you, you were sitting in a room next to people that, you know, we had uh, the 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 general that uh, did the rescue from the, the Black Hawk Down scenario. Yep. You know, we had, you know, the Oklahoma City bombing lead investigator, yep. you know, the ones that arrested Ramsey Yusuf, just guys that you read about were coming and sitting in meetings, you know, next to you. Yeah. And, yep. and just being able to learn from them, either, you know, whether it was, you know, through their stories or through, you know, just everyday interaction and seeing their management style. Yep. And, you know, and, and, and probably the ones like, you know, Dave Zadie and Bill Kinane and Don Pettis, uh, I mentioned Weldon Kennedy earlier, the ones that really, truly recognized what they were bringing to the table, but that they needed kind of yep. our tactical experience on how to build a security program. Yep. And that that's really what made the winning combination. They could knock down the doors. You know, Zadie said this great. He goes, I can get into any room. You got to go in there and tell them how we're going to deliver it because I don't know how to do that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and I think that's what created those great customer experiences that, you know, it was it was really like you're talking about not an all star team because I think all star teams have their problems. But it's like building, you know, a team like the Yankees where you've got all these people that know their role and it's. Yeah you know, not everybody trying to be the star, but recognizing what the role is in building this. And, and wanting to win, right? I mean, that yeah. that was, that there was a winning culture, like you wanted to win. And, and I, I remember all the things and all the people that you're saying, and I agree with you wholeheartedly, so. Yeah, and, and talk about using those lessons. You know, I, I say in meetings all the time when I see somebody that isn't as focused on the on the team win, you know, hey, do you, do you want to be right? You're more concerned with being right than you are the team winning, right? You know, and you right. got to get beyond that, and you got to see that you're doing it. You know, you, you know, Steve Jones. Uh, one, one thing that he always said, you know, you got to be honest when you look in the mirror and yep. what you see. Yep. You know, that was something that I learned from Jones, where he was like, you know, listen, I could see the uh, football player in his case, you know, the swimmer, you know, in my case from, you know. 30 years ago when I look in the mirror, but that's not what's staring back at me right now. Right. And you know, you got to recognize what those thoughts are and you're right. It's about what's in it for the, um, for the greater good and winning for the team. Yeah. And then I'd be remiss if I didn't say the, the, you know, the third level would be just the other employees. Um, yeah. and, and not just the peer level. Um, yeah. I have people that were officers when I first came in, I just, I just, did an event at Comerica Park and, you know, you know, from the day I first joined the officer that first mentored me, you know, showed up for that, for that experience. And it was like, it was like we were old friends again, you know, so it really created lifelong friendships out of these shared experiences 
both yeah. good and bad, you know, that forwards those types of bonds. Yeah, no, for sure. So the so you, you kind of alluded to it, but you know, what what do you what did you learn that you still carry with you today? Yeah, I think I think the thing is that, you know, there's nothing impossible, you know, if you're determined to get it done, but it's gonna take hard work. Yeah. And you know, don't listen to people telling you that something's impossible. There's always a way, it just might not be the easiest way or the least disruptive way to accomplish. And and I think during the um, during the acquisition with uh, First Universal, there, there was an insight, and I, I thought it was a huge compliment that uh, you know the person had said. You know, they said what they always thought was unique about Guardsmark was that where a lot of the industry was involved with this race to the bottom and let's you know low yep. bid to get contracts and all that. You know, Guardsmark came out and said these are our standards. If you're not going to meet them, then we're not going to be interested. And this is how we're going to manage your account. And this is how we're going to screen our people. And this is how we're going to, you know, run our accounts. And if it's if it's not to your liking, then we probably shouldn't be partners, you know. And and he and he said it was nobody else approached the industry that way. You know, this is our program. This is our price. If you don't like it, you know, we're probably shouldn't be bidding on this contract. Yep. And, yep. you know, in an industry where they're used to being, you know, everyone falling over every time the large bid comes out, we really approached it in a different way. And I think that's what garnered us the good people, the good customers and all that going forward. Yeah, no, no doubt. I mean, um, again, Tony and I, um, <laughs> well, you know, as, as, as uh, you understand, there were things that we agreed and disagreed with, just like any sort of yeah. healthy relationship. Um, the um, that 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 high um, value, that high uh, level of service um, and how you get there is something that we certainly walked away with and we still practice till this day. Um, and it is something that we certainly learn. And we we also learned that, you know, as the as the top people, the owners, um, which is what Mr. Lipman was, um, there's there's a different perspective and that perspective wasn't completely clear you know when we were working there but certainly as owners a lot of the things while again the delivery maybe could have been different we understand and empathize with a lot better and that's actually something we talk about believe it or not and i'm sure you do as well yeah the, yep um and so uh, maybe you could talk about one or two funny moments, um, I, and I know we have a lot of them. Uh, but uh, anything that stick out in your mind that that you'd want to talk about publicly that won't get both of us into trouble somehow? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, a, I, I I think the one that stands out is uh, is I was lucky enough to be part of. Uh, uh, the landing of two of the largest accounts that that Cartsmark ever had in service. Yep. And and each 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 one of those was its own unique experience. And the 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 thing that sticks out is you know you put I mean we were down in New York for you know uh, I would just say literally months putting together the proposal. I mean sweating mm -hmm. <laughs> literally and figuratively, and I'll say literally in a minute sweating every word that went into that proposal. Yep. And we had it all, you know, together we reviewed, re-reviewed, rewrote, you know, did everything. We finally had it ready to go. 
and uh, it was going to be uh, um, shipped from Mr. Lippman's residence because they had to get his signature once we were we mm -hmm. were ready to go. And so we we put it all together. We shipped it up with the courier, and I'm standing there. Uh, I'll, I'll keep names out of it, but I'm, I'm standing with the, the lead sales guy and kind of the person that had the, the customer relationship, yeah. right? And all of a sudden they noticed that I just turned like ashen and they go, what's, what's the issue? And I go, we put the signature pages to the side because we thought he was going to be here to sign it. We just <laughs> sent him out to his residence without these. And you know, the, the, sh they're going to ship in like 15 minutes, oh. you know, and, and, uh, those two guys look at me and they go, well, there's no way we're going to get that there in 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so I put it in the bowl. It was like three signature pages. And I, and this is in, this is in downtown Manhattan mm -hmm. in August. And it's gotta be like 98 degrees, you know, you yep. know, and, and high humidity and i'm running from uh 10 rock all the way to his residence which as you know is like five city blocks away right yeah, yeah. might be a little more but it's not a little less i know that <laughs> and i just i just started running now i'm in the full suit i'm in guards mark uniform i'm in the full suit yep. i got a tie and i'm running through with all this and i'm probably you know just one block in probably just point now the good thing is in any other city, people would be like, what the hell's going on with this guy in yeah. New York? People didn't even bat their eyelid twice. <laughs> Nobody like, you know, and I'm jostling because people aren't getting out of the way. Typical New York, uh, you know, downtown <laughs> summer night. Right. Yeah. And, and nobody is like, well, isn't that weird? No, it's just. And so I finally made it. And I was I probably was just dripping with sweat. Probably my my suit had probably shrunk, you know, three sizes. Uh, <laughs> and I'm there in the the security guy comes down and I go, they, I go, these need to get added to the, to the proposal. And he goes, yeah, he noticed these weren't there. And I said, oh, I, did he know I was coming? He goes, yeah, he talked to, talked to the other two guys. I said, oh, does he want to see me? And he goes, no, he hasn't stopped laughing yet. <laughs> oh man. So that, that was, that was one that sticks out, uh, that, that I can share, you know, there was, there was others like, uh, when we started in England, uh, a good friend of mine, Ted Healy and, yeah. uh, Bill Kinane, who have both, uh, passed recently, uh, you know, that was an experience, you know, into itself and just, you know, numerous stories about, you know, the planning for that, the meetings over there you know, launching, you know, the Gargemark brand on another continent, you know, it was just, it was just uh, an incredible experience. Uh, but I, I don't know that I can share a lot of those. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And then there, there are just some customer service foibles, you know, every company has them. And it, it kind of, I was like, if this is what we experience, you know, what, what's going on in the rest of the industry? You know, I had, yeah. you know, we're, we, we were late on an assessment and, you know, by the time we got it there, you know, the, the company had already, you know, passed their point where, where it was in need and just, you know, just, just things that are in the everyday kind of realm that now, when you look back at them, you're like going, geez, you know, I learned from all of these experience, but you know, yeah. it was, it was a heck of a time. Yeah, no, no doubt, man. Um, yeah. It, 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 and it was a special time. I mean, again, you, 
maybe while you're going through it, there, there are good days and bad days, but looking back on it as a whole, uh, it was pretty amazing. And I think you would agree we were very fortunate uh, to have that affiliation with the company, with the Lipman family, which um, obviously uh, means a lot to us. And um, just, uh, you know, being alumni of the organization. So um, I appreciate you kind of going through that, going through a lot of the things, and it really is kind of an interesting thing, and I'm sure many of our former colleagues will listen to this and and get a kick out of it. And, you know, again, it's one of those sort of side things about, like, this podcast that's really interesting and memorializing because, you know, it wouldn't otherwise be, right? And so yeah. thanks, for, thanks for going through that. So now let's kind of get into some of the... Um, I guess discussion points of the podcast. So let's talk about the security industry since you started in it over 30 years ago, which is pretty crazy to say out loud, right? Um, so can you talk a little bit about like what it was like when you first started and what you see from a high level perspective as some of the most significant advancements since you started, I guess? Yeah. I. I would say, you know, when I came in and we're talking, you know, early nineties, um, the industry was, was still very reactive, you know, mm -hmm. it had very much a, we're prepared to do this if this happens kind yep. of, you know, and, yep. and, and, and it was kind of a product of, you know, the people that were getting into security, you know, post-World War II, post-Vietnam and coming in that, you know, very, very reactive, you know, and and it still had that kind of from the from the proprietor from the contract side still had that kind of rent-a-cop negative stereotype yep you know you, you would get that you went to school for you know six years and you still have you know and you're in the security industry you know do you need some help and you know that that contract side was you know typified by that low pay and no benefits you know right. and so so again it was it was kind of like I said, this reactive environment with a lot of negative stereotypes and, you know, for a lot of people not considered a career, it was either considered a part-time thing or something you did after you, you, you stepped on from your initial career. It wasn't really looked at as a career at the time that, that, that I first started. Sure. Um, sure. What I've seen change, um, the, the concept that there is a huge disparity you know, between contract and proprietary has really shifted over the years. And I, and, and quite frankly, I think that we had a lot to do with that. You know, a lot of times we kind of build ourselves as the alternative to proprietary at Guardsmark. And yep. it wasn't a way that most companies were thinking of it. You know, the, the contract was there to supplement your proprietary force or something to do if you were forced to change out. But you know, we kind of saw that kind of change, you know, in the evolution of my career, at least, to where companies started talking about core business and saying, you know, listen, if you don't put a bolt on our product, then you're not essential. And there are other companies that focus on things essential and whether that be, you know, security, catering, landscaping and so forth. You know, there, there was a time here in Michigan where you could get a job as a maintenance person at Ford working for Ford with Ford benefits and things like that. Right. And you're, you're, you're set, you know, but 
you know, it came to the point where, hey, if our job is to get cars out the door, who who makes that happen? And then who supports us? And those support roles could go to companies that focus on that. So I think, sure. you know, again, that that kind of mindset changed where, you know, you can use contract to get those benefits and that. So I think that was a huge change that was markedly different in 1992 as it is today. Yeah. Um, the the other would just you know I got to go there. It, it, it's just the the technology that's changed yep. it. The you know from handheld technology that the officers can use to yep. you know the way payroll gets done, the way you can uh, staff uh, to camera analytics, robotics, and then insights from you know all kinds of data that's coming in. You know, so it really went from kind of being this archaic, reactive kind of setting to you know, this forward thinking, you know, how can we leverage technology in order to get the most out of our security program kind of thing. So that's that, you know, if you went in in 1992 saying this is what I'll do, people would thought you were crazy. Yeah, yeah, no, no doubt. Um, the uh, it, and it's interesting. I mean, I, I agree with you uh, on the sort of reactive versus proactive. I think obviously in between all of this um, is September 11th and the impacts that had yeah. and you know, ob yeah. obviously other incidents that occurred. So um, wh what do you see as areas that still need work? Like wh where, where do you see areas for improvement still? So pr probably the biggest and, and, you know, I'm actually surprised I still hear this from time to time. Sure. Um, it has to do with foreseeability. And you, you just kind of led into it with with what you said there. I, th I thought there were two two very defining moments in 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 what was our shared career, yeah. um, and that was the Columbine shooting mm -hmm. uh, that happened uh, in the late '90s, and then of course September 11th. And I, I always I always tell people this that you know prior to Columbine, people used to say it'll never happen here or we don't prepare for that, that's a big city issue or, or what have you. And after Columbine and the discussion that happened after Columbine was it could happen anywhere. Sure. And, and when you had an incident happen, you no longer get the, we didn't know this could happen here. You got, it was only a matter of time and people started seeing, you know, the problems that led to it. And so I think that was kind of the first one that woke people up that it doesn't, and it, not just mm -hmm. school shootings, but active shooters in general, mm -hmm. You know, they can happen in rural areas. They can. It's not just a big city problem. And I think prior to that, you didn't see a lot of people looking at, you know, that it can happen here. You know, that oh, we're secluded or we're rural or we're in this other type of environment. You know, that they that they wouldn't need to do that. And then of course, 9/11, the fact that there can be a mass casualty attack on U.S. soil. And I think I think foreseeability changed all that. And I think you were part of those discussions at the time, you know, Hey, this is going to get companies more focused on foreseeability. And, you know, we, yeah. we really focused on that, but, you know, I had just in the last year, you know, I was, I was uh, talking to somebody about our product and what it does. And, and he says, well, I, I don't really want to do risk assessments because if I do a risk assessment, you're going to point out vulnerabilities and that's going to make me liable. And, and it just shot me back 30 years and you know, I can't even believe I can think 30 years back now, but it shot me back to, you know, I thought I heard that for the last time, you know, yep. you know, that, 
that somebody would say that documenting vulnerabilities would be something that would increase their liability, especially after what we've we've been through. And you know, I st I still, you know, I look at it as you know, wh where do you want to be when an action happens? And and I, and I even see the government agencies like CTPAT and and the mm -hmm. defense industry are getting away from saying here is the standard and adhere to the standard. Mm -hmm. You know, do these do these five hundred things and you've met the standard. And right. even those agencies are getting away from that and saying, no, that's not what we want to see is show us you have an ability to assess your vulnerabilities. Yep. Now, once you identify your vulnerabilities, that you have a program to remediate them and that you have a program that is in this continual state of assess, analyze, remediate and reassess, you know, and show us how that works. And again, they're getting more to it's it's the process not the you know i am the all-encompassing knowing and here are the 500 things you need to do because what what's happened you still have an incident and now the organization says why well, did everything this agency said to do go after yeah. them because they're the one who put it together right yeah yep. so, so i think the process is is what needs to work and people need to realize that i i'm you know i i still don't can't believe I make the foreseeable, you know, foreseeability argument that, you know, hey, you got to have a program, you got to show that you're doing it. And wouldn't you much rather say, I can't control everything, but here's my plan for getting to all the vulnerabilities that I identified. And here's what I've done. Here's what's on the roadmap. And here's what I have to accomplish. Would you rather be there? Or would you rather be the one saying, well, I was told not to document my vulnerabilities, So I didn't, <laughs> you know? Yep. No, I'll tell you, man, uh, you're saying that. And obviously, like you gain that deep understanding that, that you certainly have uh, from not only learning and adjusting and all that, but being on the wrong side of that. Right. And and not being prepared uh, like you're describing. Right. And so that really, really, really hits home. And, you know, we, we talk about all the same things, right? We talk about all of the same things and, you know, duty of care, I think, um, yeah. is, is plays a very different role today. Right. So having those types of answers, um, I mean, you may not, it, you may only find out if something really goes wrong. Uh, but, I certainly would not be on, uh, want to be on the other side of questioning um, if if you know um, there's a duty of care issue and that's my answer. I, I yeah. assume you would agree. Yeah, and I th this example it, it, because it's so fresh. I, I remember it, it, they laid out their 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 uh, thesis pretty pretty accurately. They said, you know, I had where I was CSO, I had a general counsel who told me that. He didn't want me to do any risk analysis or document any types of vulnerabilities or what we were doing about them. Yeah. And he goes, and that came from the 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 chief counsel, the general counsel. Right. And he was adamant. He goes, he, and you know, he was saying, so I, I don't want to be doing this type of risk analysis. And so I kind of let him go and he talked and and I said, okay, but I've been in this situation with clients before. Yep. What yep. do you think happens? once an incident happens and, and the first thing is when's the last assessment that you did yeah what did you find and what were you doing about it 
Yep. Those, those are going to come from any plaintiff's attorney worth their salt. And you're going to get those questions. Yep. And let me, you know, again, let me put you in the situation of having that. Would you rather say, you know, I've done, I, the last assessment I did was within the last six months. Here's a list of what I found. Here's the yep. action plan I have to address it. You can see that this particular incident was was ranked in, in on our roadmap uh, to, to remediate. And, you know, we just, you know, we couldn't get to everything by the time this incident happened, but we did these things to try to lessen the impact if it did happen, you know, given the probability and severity of the event. And that's how we did that. You're totally, fully defensible, right? Yeah. And I said, or do you want your answer to be, <laughs> you know, uh. I was told not to document anything. And, and, and quite frankly, you'll never get the chance to say that. Mm hmm. Because quite frankly, that general counsel that told you that will probably say our problem was that we had malfeasance based on the part of the CSO yep. and we removed them as part of our action following this incident. Yep. And yep. I, go, I can tell you, I can tell you that that's how I've seen it play out in reality. I've never seen it play out to anyone's advantage that they didn't do a vulnerability assessment and they didn't work on it. Yep. Yep. No, for sure, man. I saw, I think we both agree. Uh, that like a fundamental component to a strong security program is assessing your risks and determining your needs. And like you alluded to earlier, it's not going to be the same for everyone. You could be a two person, a one person organization, right? And have a certain set of risks. Um, and you could be, you know, a hundred thousand person and, and have a different set of risks, right? And so yeah. each uh, organization, each individual has a different set of risks, really, right? So, yeah. uh, can you talk about, um, I guess, the important um, uh, importance of security assessments? Um, is there anything, I guess, you'd add to it besides what you just said? And what are sort of the general guidelines that you can offer when conducting an assessment? Well, uh, and I'll, I'll I'll say this because you, you you make some some great points there. Um, you know, I think first and foremost, uh, and when I kind of, you know, we did assessments at Guardsmark, but it wasn't, it wasn't core, right? Yep. Um, you know, but we had, you know, we had the NFL, we had major fortune uh, 100 to 500 organizations that we did them for. And one of the things when I came to Circadian, uh, and I was actually pleased to see that Circadian, when they were kind of taking this, you know, disruptor kind of approach, you know, took the biggest objection that we used to get, it, you know, which used in, you'll, you'll remember either you don't understand my industry, mm -hmm. my company or how we view risk. Yep. And, and, you know, you'd have to fight that each time saying, no, we've done hundreds of hospital assessments or we've done thousands of industrial, you know, yep. and the way, the way I kind of approach it now is you're right. You know, we, we don't understand fully how your company values risk and we don't, necessarily are experts in your industry all the time. And because of that, we give you the tools to be able to adjust how, you know, what your tolerances are given your specific things. So I think the greatest, you know, the, the importance of security assessments is that you need to know where you stand on different mm -hmm. scenarios. Mm -hmm. But the general guideline is that 
it needs to be unique to to every industry company and really uh assessor that you're using on it and yeah. because of that you need to distill it down and to be as objective as possible and look across your entire organization you know we, we often see organizations either focused on their high inherent risk locations and you know kind of let some of their um, lesser organization or lesser locations go because they think, oh, you know, I want to focus on LA and yep. Detroit because, you know, those are hot spots, you know, but they don't think of, you know, in rural Alabama, we're the largest employer. And if somebody loses their job, you know, they might be more likely to have, you know, yep. an aggressive talent, you know, issue in that. And so it's, it's kind of that, you know, you got to have taken into account that whole organization, that holistic approach. And, you know, we, we met with a customer actually in, uh, uh, I think it was in New York, and they had spent a lot of time on, you know, kind of the squeaky wheel, you know, that wanted to be in compliance, that wanted to be, you know, at the forefront, and, and they spent a lot of time there. And they were really only moving the compliance needle from like 98.1 to 98.5, whereas if they had, you know, when they looked at the entire organization, and saw that if they focused on two other geographies, they could have probably improved the overall organizational risk score uh, markedly had they used some of that time that they spent moving that needle just a little bit to some right. of those areas that really needed it. So it's you really have to look at it holistically. Yep. And and that's kind of, you know, you, you can't just do these point in time ones. You know, usually, as you know, by yep. the time you get the data, it's already, you know, and the reports compiled, it might be out of date. Yep. No, no doubt. So, so when, when is the right time uh, and how often should it be done? Well, and, and, and I think uh, the last part of that is who should be involved. Yeah. So, so the, the right time, you know, again, uh, and I'm, I'm going to kind of look at risk is something that you need to be evaluating on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. You know, it is ever present and it's dynamic and it's ever changing. And so there's really no right time. I can tell you, like, for school assessments, you know, we want to do them when the kids are in so we can see how things actually function. You know, so like the summertime wouldn't be a good time to do the, you know, those types of assessment. You know, we want to see how the buses run, how, you know, so, so really, the, you know, it might be specific to different industries about when, but really risk needs to be something that's constantly evaluated. And, and so the timing is just, you know, as, as advanced as possible. And, and one thing that I think they should focus on is not just general assessments, but look at specific, specific scenarios that you're either highly vulnerable to, or if they happen, could be catastrophic for your organization. Sure. That's more of a, 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 an approach that, that we take as opposed to, you know, a good time to do it. Um, and how often I go back to it again, if you could model different scenarios, you know, as often as they come up and as you can think of different things that could either make you vulnerable or if they occurred, uh, be severe to the organization, you know, th that's that's what should direct your planning, not any kind of timetable. Sure. And and who should be involved? I, th I think it really needs to be a, a top down approach, you know especially with the different scenarios. Cause you know, we often ask, 
you know, what are the concerns that keep your CSO and CEO up at night? You know, and so because of that, it needs to be like from the very top to how people interact daily. And, you know, it, you, there's also a, you know, a look at when you do these scenarios, it's almost like, you know, gamifying a, um, a tabletop as opposed to a traditional assessment. Yep. Yeah, no, I, I, I think the dynamic nature of like assessing risk is um, I think that's just so important. And I think that like um, trying to do that on a in a manual way becomes very, very complicated, yeah. not only from just practical, but documenting it and stuff like that. And, and you know, that's where like a firm like yours plays a pretty key role. Um, but let, let's talk about like benefits of performing like assessments in-house versus maybe using a third party to um, like, or, or, or I guess pitfalls um, of doing, uh, using outside agencies. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. And, you know, I, I kind of look at it as it depends upon the maturity of the organization's risk department or or how they view risk yep. um we have customers that have assessors on staff that go out and assess their facilities yep. and they they don't use uh third parties right and the the biggest hurdle that they had was the same thing you would get if you outsourced it you're yep. doing point in time assessments the traditional way Yep. You get them in, you have to compile the report. Once yep. the reports are compiled, and I, I have a specific customer in mind, they've got 60 some odd sites around the globe. Yep. They then have to aggregate that data. And, you know, it's building a spreadsheet and it's, you know, it's looking at analysis and statistics and, and putting that all together. And I will, I will quote, I will quote my customer and say, and let's face it, a lot of people that are coming out of law enforcement or, or went through criminal justice, aren't the greatest statisticians or spreadsheet makers out there. And he said, we, we spent, we spent months doing the analysis and preparing the reports for justification, you know, to that. And, you know, we get the assessments done and that's, you know, where, you know, kind of we come in and say, yeah, but if you think about a new way of capturing that information and you capture that information digitally, and you're focused on the vulnerabilities and then going right from the assessment to remediation, then we can build in things to say, okay, given this budget and given these possible remediations and the impact they have upon the organization, we can tell you which ones you would need to do. And that was, you know, that was kind of the breakthrough, you know, with the in-house organizations, because it wasn't so much that they didn't have the resources to conduct. It was the ability to analyze the data, create yep. tasks and justify the remediation that they needed from yep. the outsourcing. The pitfalls were kind of like what we, what I said before, yep. does that assessor have the experience in your industry or with your company or how you want to view risk? Yep. to be able to give a meaningful analysis of what they're doing and and the the ability to not be able to go in and say 
here are the things that I want you to look at. They might have kind of a, a set way in which they perform. And so the, the way the expectations align with what, what the output is, isn't always synergistic when you, when you outsource that. Um, yeah. the, um, the benefit though, because there, there is, there is this, uh, kind of symbiotic relationship that needs to exist between the two, because I have another, uh, organization, uh, customer that they've got a very small risk department. They don't have people that can go out and perform the assessments on all of their facilities and have said to us, Hey, you know, we're going to, we've got a plan of how we're going to assess and we're going to hit every location and we're going to probably have them. And for different customers, it's either a three, four or five year cycle that they're going to get by the end of that cycle, they're going to get to every facility. Right. But they recognize we may have an incident. We may have a shooting at one of our facilities or, or an aggressive assailant or workplace violence situation at one of our facilities. And we're going to be calling you and saying, we're going to need assessors to get this assessment done in your tool so that we can look organization wide. And we're going to need to do 400 locations over the next three months because this needs to be done yesterday. And so so in in that case you know although that is not their preferred method they realize that they would not have the resources to do it but sure. kind of where we're coming from is the way that you're capturing the information can be captured by a third party uh and you know whether it be the objective way in which we're capturing the information or the the ability to have it immediately available for analysis and not have to wait for the report to be written is something that's appealing to these organizations. So if they do have that, you know, we do have, you know, an outsourced group that we can rely on to go in and help them with the, the you know, problem solve for that. So, you sure. know, again, with anything, it, it depends on your organization and what you can afford to do. And then the one or the other is available to you if you have the need. Sure, sure. No, I, I mean, I, I think that's all like the, the, the point about like what happens once it i mean that's really where the work begins right once once the yeah. analysis once the assessment is conducted uh what happens from there um is equally important i mean probably more important right because if you get a bunch of data and it's unusual unusable then what's the point of doing it in the first place yeah and so. that's that's kind of you know again what we always say is the the assessment doesn't end <laughs> at the completion of the assessment it right. really the case for risk analysis just begins there right. right you know and once you assess you got to be able to analyze it once you analyze it and identify you got to be able to create tasks to to remediate what you found and then yep. you got to have the ability to go out and make this a life cycle process you know it it, it has to be something that you're continually evaluating because yep. the risk doesn't go away and it you know the risk that exists today is could change immediately tomorrow. You know, if the president of the United States goes to visit your factory, you've got a completely different risk profile yep. on that day than you did in the months leading up to that day. And sure. are you prepared for something like that? Yeah, no doubt. Um, so let, let's talk about technology and how it can play a role in making assessments easier to conduct and more useful when completed. Can you can you get into that a little bit in terms of just the yeah. broad overview? Yep. Yeah, I think I think the 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 big the big thing is, and I and I kind of alluded it alluded to it earlier, 
it's because we can collect data in a way that hasn't been done in this there have been security assessments for thousands of years right and in in you know in this country probably formalized for the last 150 years but they were all captured point in time you know they were they were all static and done to whatever was going on at that particular time And, and a lot of times uh you know by the time the assessment was written you know it's already out of date right Yep. And technology allows you to go out, capture information as it exists today, and put it in the hands for analysis as soon as you're, you're as soon as you're ready. Because you're you're not worried about stylizing report. You know you're yep. you're concerned with capturing what is compliant, what is deficient, what is missing, uh, what is needed, and then given that information, here are recommendations to go. And, and you need those right away. You don't need them three months later. Yep. And so technology gives you the ability to get that information quicker and then to move from awareness, which is the assessment, to action, which is the actual analysis and the beginning of the remediation process. And technology is the only way that you can make it a life cycle process because if you think about it and you, you know it's been done in other industries you know if you can stay then you know you get that baseline done and you yep. start doing assessments and capturing data this way yep. and you carry it through to remediation you know now i see my risk score was at this level yep. when i did my baseline through six months of remediation and maybe some changes in my inherent risk it's now here and i can show that trend line you know, going from assessment to assessment or at any point in time, because now I've made it part of my daily routine. You know, I, in my opinion, you know, a risk dashboard should be in the GSOC, you know, and as threats change, as as that dynamic risk changes, uh, my inherent variables and my remediations change my effective controls, I'm actually able to get insights on literally a daily basis of what, you know, where I stand. and whether it's uh, I want to protect for, you know, a hazard, um, a threat or a compliance issue, I can be able to model that based on data I have in the system that is up to date and in near real time. Yep. So, yep. so and you can only technology, you know, I, you know, I, I can talk to my blue in the face to somebody who says they create the greatest spreadsheets and write the greatest reports. And I yep. go, well, you, you need to listen to some of these CSOs when they're asked how much of that security assessment did you read? You know, and, and again, I talked about Steve Jones, you know, saying you need to look in the mirror and be honest. You know, a lot of those CSOs will tell you they hit the executive summary and begin creating tasks off of that. But do they get to all 300 pages of a report like that? You know, no. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you, you know, um, speaking of CSOs, the one other quick point that I would make is that, you know, from from our perspective, one of one of the things that we see fairly frequently is that, you know, just just like any other department that has needs. Right. We need more cameras. We need more people. We need more technology, whatever it is, sort of like um, papering that need and and sort of using the paper to then vocalize and make a case for what the needs are. I think I think this helps to uh, 
do all those things, right? And so I think, you know, when, when people say I need to, you know, I need to do this, well, it's like anything else. You got to you got to show why. And I think all of these things help with that. Uh, yeah, with through the technology to be able to create a dashboard and show here is our risk as it is today. Yeah. If we implement these and, and you can see which of our which of our locations are most at risk. Yeah. If we invest X amount of dollars yep. in these remediations this is what our risk profile will change to. Yep. Yep. And to be, again, and having that data back, hard data, not, not a theory, not a paper, yep. hard data that's been collected recently yep. and can be used to show this is where you will go. And, you know, we, we had, uh, and this kind of ties in again about the technology. Uh, we had a, a client up in Canada um, that's been using, our, uh, you know, using technology for like two years to do their assessments and collect all their insights and everything. And then during COVID, they acquired another company in the States and they had the, you know, the first thing was, can we modify our assessment to do it for due diligence for an M&A? And we're like, yeah, you know, it's, it's just a different type of assessment, right? And yeah. we can capture that data. So they did that and they were able to get all the US sites Done. Now, then they had sites in Mexico, Central America, and South America. And yeah. because it was during COVID, they couldn't get approved to go down there and do that. And, you know, yeah. we kind of went back again. This is the beauty of the technology. We said, we have assessors in Mexico, Central, and South America that operate in those locations and currently operate there that can capture the same assessment on the same tool and give you the the insights that you want the, and the, you'll make the interpretations they'll collect the data for you um you know uh the founder our founder often does uh, medical he says you know the, those those types of assessors are like who you first talk to when you go into a doctor visit right you know so the doctor doesn't yeah. come in and take your blood pressure and weigh you and you know ask your recent history and that you know and 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 so in this particular case, you know, they had a problem. They have a, a timetable for due diligence to be done. They have to get it accomplished. They're not being allowed to go into uh, these three areas uh, because of COVID. But yep. here's a solution. We can capture it because we're using this technology and we've got people that can capture this data. So, you know, it was it was kind of like that that win-win scenario where we can yep. help you accomplish goal and it's going to be totally transparent because you're still going to get the data to make the uh, analysis and then the recommended remediations and you're not going to be held up you know because you physically can't get yourself into you know these locations so we're able to make that kind of a a, a win for the customer yeah that's a, that's a really really good um sort of case study and kind of i mean again there's there's so many just practical um advancements just just because of use of technology in a lot of different areas but this is certainly no exception and you know um i really uh mike i appreciate you uh you know we we've talked about this for a little while and we finally got it off the ground i really do appreciate you sort of joining me and kind of going down memory lane uh, talking about the industry guards mark advances areas to work on so um 
I guess the last question I'd have for you is we usually end the show with takeaways. Is there anything, if you had to say one or two things about what you hope people walk away from, from this episode, uh, do you have something you'd like to say? I would say just, you know, I, I always go back to, you know, foreseeability and remember uh, you, you can never be too safe. You know, you, you really have to approach risk on that daily basis and say, where do I stand today? And don't get complacent, you know, because complacency is what leads to incidents like this. And, you know, we talked about what situation you would be in. So, you know, develop that process of assess, analyze, remediate, repeat. <laughs> you know, I can't, I can't, can't stress that enough. Yeah, I think that's a great, great thing to leave uh, everyone with. And um, uh, I would, I'm going to say one last thing about just sort of like, I'm sure a lot of our former colleagues and friends will end up listening to this. And um, just, I, I think you would echo this. Thank you for, I guess, uh, your friendship and support and, you know, everything we've been through over many, many years now. Um, so, you know, shout out to Guards Mark, uh, Mr. Lippman, the Lippman family, as well as all of our former colleagues. So, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, Mike, I appreciate it uh, to everyone. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, we're going to leave uh, all of Mike's contact information as well as Circadian's uh, in the uh, description of the podcast. We hope you guys uh, reach out to them. Feel free to reach out to us to get to them as well and learn more about how this technology could really, really change the game for you. And uh, till next time, uh, thanks so much, Mike. No, thank you. Don't forget to follow us. We are on LinkedIn and Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube.